The Brooklyn Bridge has to be one of the most fascinating stories you can imagine when it comes to the United States history and infrastructure. It's got innovative technology. You have people plunging themselves down into the depths of the East River. You have people ascending up into the heavens far higher than anything else in New York at the time. You've got political intrigue, death, all sorts of corruption, immigrants. Every aspect of the United States is all wrapped up into this one bridge over the course of just a little over a decade. I just see it as the American story in a small yet crucial little corner of the nation. This is Infrastructure Junkies. Welcome, Infrastructure Junkies, to your show. This is a podcast created by right-of-way professionals for right-of-way professionals. The Infrastructure Junkies podcast is the voice of the right-of-way industry. We are your primary source of news, trends, and developments in eminent domain, right-of-way acquisition, and the Uniform Relocation Act. I'm Dave Arnold. And I'm Kristen Bennett. But first, we want to thank our longtime sponsor, Pendulum Land Services, for their continuing support of Infrastructure Junkies. They keep supporting us, and we keep making podcasts. Thank you, Pendulum Land Services. Find them at PendulumLand.com. PendulumLand.com. So today, we're going to talk about one of the greatest infrastructure marvels in American history. You wouldn't be talking about the eighth wonder of the world, would you? Why, yes, I would. The amazing Brooklyn Bridge. One of the most fascinating stories I can remember hearing, like maybe in my entire life. Yeah, and that's the funny thing, is that you see all these amazing things in infrastructure, and little do you realize that each one has a story behind it. And this one is fascinating, innovative, and full of drama. It is fascinating, and I would like to say that this was my idea. And I know you're going to claim it as your idea. It was my idea. Was it? Actually, it wasn't. Whose idea was it? It's the idea of a new friend of ours that we met at the podcast movement conference in Nashville, Tennessee. We did. And would you like to tell our listeners how we met this person? Embarrassing. It is a little embarrassing. You tell it. So we were at the podcast movement for the opening party where it's sort of post-COVID, sort of not, and they've got everybody jammed in for the opening party in this really small bar area at the Gaylord Opryland Hotel. And Kristen and I are standing in line waiting to get a drink. I was complaining. I think you were complaining. I I think I was complaining Uh, even louder. probably. And there was a guy behind us who was friendly, and he said, hey, so what's going on with you guys? We're like, nothing? We're what's just, up? What's up with you? What's up? What do you what? Why are you talking? And he turned out to be a super nice guy. And not only is he a super nice guy, but he's got a really popular podcast about history. And it's not like some fly by night thing. This guy's a big deal. And his podcast, which is called History That Doesn't Suck, well, it's a podcast that doesn't suck. It is phenomenal. It's a great podcast. We went back, we listened to it, and we realized that this guy has, even though he's a history professor. He's got podcast episodes about infrastructure projects. And so he's got one about the Brooklyn Bridge, which we put on and said, my gosh, our listeners would love to hear about this. It's a feat of engineering and human strength. That's all there is to it. So we reconnected with Greg 
we call him Greg, and asked if he would be a guest on the Infrastructure Junkies podcast and tell the story of this amazing bridge. We were a little nervous to ask, but much to our delight, we asked and he immediately said, oh gosh, yeah, I'd love to. When are we going to record? See, everybody wants to be an infrastructure junkie. Of course. So let me tell you a little bit about him. Dr. Greg Jackson is best known for being the creator, head writer, and host of a podcast called History That Doesn't Suck. And he's also a contributing historical consult to the podcast American Elections Wicked Game. Greg is Assistant Professor of Integrated Studies and Assistant Director of National Security Studies at Utah Valley University, where he teaches courses spanning U.S., European, and Middle Eastern history. He earned his Ph.D. in history from the University of Utah. So he's a Ute. He's a Ute. When Greg isn't researching, teaching, or podcasting, he's usually hanging with his family, cycling, rock climbing, or indulging his love of languages. Professor Jackson, thank you for joining us on the Infrastructure Junkies podcast today. It's my absolute pleasure. Thanks for having me. We want to talk about what I think is one of the most fascinating infrastructure projects of its time, and its legacy endures to this day, even though it's many years old. And that's the Brooklyn Bridge. And as the host of an outstanding podcast, which we discussed, which is called History That Does Not Suck, and it really doesn't suck, you had an outstanding episode about the Brooklyn Bridge, and we wanted you to bring that story over to the Infrastructure Junkies podcast and tell us a little bit about the history of that project, how it evolved, how it was developed, and how that infrastructure affected New York City and ultimately the whole world. Yeah, I'm absolutely happy to do that. I'll tell you, I've always had an interest in development, in construction. My first job before I was in academia, I was a construction worker as I was going through college, but I fell in love with this bridge as I wrote this episode and really came to appreciate just the audacity of the project, the brilliance behind it, the innovative thinking for its time. I think that's something we often lose sight of in the present when we see whether you're talking about a, a movie genre or you're talking about something like technology, we take for granted something as simple as flipping on a, a light switch and not realizing all the infrastructure that went in to making what is for us mundane a thing. And the Brooklyn Bridge, it was absolutely cutting edge. And so many things that came after the Brooklyn Bridge, other famous bridges that we could think of, the Golden Gate, for example, none of those exist without the same ideas that first manifested or were first put into practice on such a large scale in building the Brooklyn Bridge. So I'll, I'll shut up there and let you keep going, but I'm excited for this. No, the, so the Brooklyn Bridge post-construction was the largest bridge project in the world at the time. Is that right? That is correct. I can't even imagine the inspiration behind that. Like who decided about that there was a need for the Brooklyn Bridge? And how did that vision come about if nothing like that existed to date? The need was there, but the ability to do it seemed impossible. Going all the way back to as early as 1800, there were just a few thousand people living in what we call Brooklyn today. Well, they call it Brooklyn as well, but it's a mind bender. You got to pause and imagine this massive metropolis today, that's Brooklyn, as being just a small little town. Now, it was very quickly reliant on 
Manhattan, which was a independent and completely different city. Today, Brooklyn is a part of New York City. You got the five boroughs and all that jazz. But at that time, Brooklyn was completely separate. But of course, there's a lot of commerce between Brooklyn and nearby Manhattan. They're only separated by a whopping ballpark 1,600 feet of water. That's the East River. So by about 1800, you already have people thinking and saying, a bridge would be great if, if we could somehow connect Brooklyn and New York. That'd be fantastic. The problem is the East River, as narrow as that might seem to us today, to think 1,600 feet, big deal. The East River isn't really a river. It's actually a tidal strait. You've got a lot of turbulent water. Even if you go there today, even with everything that's been built up, you could see smaller vessels just skipping on the water as they hit wave after wave. So these are fairly turbulent waters. And somehow you're going to have to get infrastructure deep down to the bottom of this muddy tidal strait in order to put up a bridge. Furthermore, what type of bridge are you even going to put up at this point in time to span a 1,600-foot river? Even if you had optimal conditions, that is a huge undertaking. Again, today we'd look at that and be like, yeah, sure, no sweat. But at the time, this was mind-blowing. So ferries were the answer. They could hold up to 600 people. But ferries that would move people from Brooklyn to New York, still, it's sketchy. You're on this choppy water, but what else are you going to do? So people do that day in and day out. In the winter, you can end up with ice chunks in the East River. So it can get a little scary at times. And as New York continues to grow, Brooklyn continues to grow. We get to about 1850. And Brooklyn and New York are still completely separate cities. But they are both within the top 10 largest cities in the United States. And New York is the largest city by a long shot. Number two has less than 50% of the population of New York. So now we're getting to the place where you have this massive tidal strait, and it is just brimming with ferries going back and forth all day long. All these Brooklynites who are making the trek to New York, really, New Yorkers don't go to Brooklyn. They're so more important than you know, <laughs> going to lowly little Brooklyn. Right. So it's really a Brooklyn problem. Day in, day out, they're going back and forth, and then you get the ice chunks in the winter. It's scary, and people get stuck sometimes. And according to probably history, but somewhat questionable, maybe legend, John Roebling is on one of these ferries in the winter of either 1852 or 1853. He's with his wife and his young son, Washington, and they get stuck. The ice has blocked them up. They can't go. And something you need to know about John Roebling, he's a German immigrant, and he lives up to every stereotype about Germans and timeliness. This is a man who is deeply insulted if you waste his time. There's nothing more important. He absolutely told off General Fremont during the Civil War because the guy had the audacity to let John Roebling, who is utterly unimportant as far as General Fremont was concerned, sit outside his office waiting for more than five minutes. He <laughs> dashed out a note on his business card and said, John Roebling waits for no man, sent that into him, and he was done. Gutsy. That's Gutsy. admirable. Yeah. <laughs> so, so now you take that personality, right? And you strand him on the East River for hours. To him, this is like, uh, it's his own personal hell. And so the story is that sitting there, the engineer that he is, he's one of the most brilliant bridge builders in American history, hands down, no, no questions asked. He's sitting there and in his mind's eye, he's envisioning a suspension bridge. And he's always had a thing for suspension bridges in particular. He's built a number of very impressive bridges already by this point. 
he's got this crafted in his mind and it's still going to be years before he'd be commissioned to do it. But ultimately, he is the one who circles back to being asked to try the impossible, a bridge over that tidal strait that is the East River. Let me ask you this. What's the significance of a suspension bridge? And I've always been so fascinated by these things. It looks like a road which is held up by string. So why did he conceive of the presence of a suspension bridge at that location? Why not just put in some pilings and put a road over it? Roebling, going back to his education in Prussia, which today we would call it Germany, but he grew up in the, the Prussian kingdom and he just fell in love with suspension bridges. And John Roebling was convinced, uh, I'm almost quoting him here, but I can't give it to you completely verbatim, but he did say that suspension bridges are the safest bridges, hands down. So in his mind, there was nothing better. Now, he also said in that same statement that suspension bridges are absolutely dangerous if they're done incorrectly. But for someone who's smart like him, they're the safest bridge that that you can have. So he wanted that because he saw it as the best, the pinnacle sort of design in terms of safety, being able to withstand a large load and being able to stretch across such... But again, to us, maybe it doesn't seem like a big deal, but at the time the longest span of a bridge that ever would have been built to date. Wow. And with the suspension bridge, it's less disruption of the waterway, correct? Because it allows ships and boats to travel underneath it because of the lack of all the pylons. Is that correct? Yeah. So all you're going to have are the two towers that are coming out of the water. And then the bridge itself can sit at a rather high level over the waterline. I'm trying to remember off the top of my head. I want to say, let's see, the towers are 276 feet above the mean water line. The Brooklyn Bridge Towers. Yes, the towers. As so, and, and, yeah, and that, that's not the whole tower. I'm just talking about from mean tide up to the top. It's 276 feet. Before we move on, I want to bring something to light here. And I, I think I might have gotten this off of your podcast. Is in the 1800s, one out of every four bridges in America failed? Yes. Is that what you understand? Absolutely. Yeah. So building a bridge. Talk about a bridge uh, over troubled water. Jeez. That's bridge not too a great far. Stat. No. <laughs> oh my god. That's 25%. Well, we're gonna we gotta cross a bridge, kids. We're gonna take our lives into our hands because it's 1850. You know, this is one of the things for me as a historian that I am truly fascinated by. I, I'm not saying that we shouldn't be as safe as we are today, but we live in such a safe world. I don't think we appreciate the degree of risk that everyday people, and it's not like it was just the United States, around the world, the risks that were simply inherent in the day-to-day. Whether you want to talk about people going on, say, the Oregon Trail, pioneers who came out west, 5% chance you're dying. How many of us would get in the car or get in a plane if you were told, (laughs) okay, 5% chance you're dead? Everyone driving on the freeway today, one out of 20 are dead, right? Like That's the world they live in. People take these big, bold risks left, right, and center. And uh, it's, so it's the same with bridges. You need this bridge. It's going to improve commerce. It, it could open up the economy for your town. There isn't another route. But you might die. So but there's that. Die. But you might die. Yeah. <laughs> so, hey, so you, know, you hope if it's going to go down, you're not on it at the time. Right, right. right. So <laughs> Roebling has this idea that if we construct a bridge over the East River, which is held up by string, It'll be safer. I don't think it's string, Dan. <laughs> I'm not thinking it's string. So again, he says suspension bridges are the safest 
if they're done correctly, right? Because I'm not going to pretend I'm an engineer. I will say one, one of the interesting things about being a historian is that I do have to gain a decent amount of knowledge on all sorts of topics. Because even as I might be recounting the history, you can't properly do it if you don't understand some of the basics of, yeah, yeah. You know, of what's going on. So I don't think I could do justice. You'd have an engineer spitting out his or her coffee if I tried to give a perfect explanation of how suspension bridges work. And then you get that nasty tweet and we don't want that. So what I will say though <laughs> is... Our is listeners that, don't tweet. Don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> okay. You, you'd get that nasty email. But it, it, it does create the, the potential for the bridge to actually get into something of a flux. The bridge can create its own inertia until it shakes itself until it falls down. That's the big risk with suspension bridges. They hold very well the actual weight of the bridge. What you're concerned about is if it gets enough wind that it starts to actually tilt the bridge and then the bridge runs off its own inertia until it self-destructs. John Roebling thinks about all these angles. This is why if you walk across or drive across the Brooklyn Bridge today, you're going to see that there are trusses reinforcing this whole suspension bridge. So in theory, all of that should be not entirely necessary. It, it really should be that that the massive steel cables that go into these incredibly large 60,000 ton anchors on either side of the bridge, that alone should hold it. But the trusses are there to prevent it from going into a wobble that turns into a collapsed bridge. Wow. I've seen videos of the the bridges that do the wobble and it, it, it's this like the scariest thing I've ever seen in my life. Have you ever seen that? Yeah. Yeah. So oh, yeah. Like going up in the St. Louis arch and you can feel it going oh, back and no, forth. Thank you. Yeah. No, no thanks. Thank you. Yep. So Roebling had this vision and he decided it should be a suspension bridge. Did he have any experience with suspension bridges? Yes. He, in fact, when he was a student growing up in Prussia, he, <laughs> I'm sure you've got some listeners here who are nodding going, absolutely, I've been there, I've done this. He took one of his holidays and in this world where travel is so much more difficult, right? You don't have planes, you don't have automobiles. Trains are still becoming a robust thing. He makes basically a pilgrimage to the one suspension bridge currently in existence in all of Prussia. It takes him days, but he gets there. And it's like this big emotional, spiritual experience for him. He's completely nerded out on him. So he's already got a first-rate engineering education in Prussia. Decides that Prussia is way too autocratic, bureaucratic. He's heard all these great things about how in America it's meritocracy and you're not hemmed in by both old aristocratic ideas and frankly, what regulation, for lack of a better word, though they wouldn't quite call it that in the 19th century. So he comes over here. And at first, he's going to be the most American possible. So he gets into farming. But that really just doesn't work for him. He learns really fast that he misses engineering. And being a, a native-born German, he stays up on engineering. And he's reading in a German publication about this new invention of basically rope that's made out of metal. Iron is just starting to really be turned into steel on some sort of larger level. And they're taking wires and binding them together, right? Just like they would rope to make cables. And this is what really launches his career in the United States because he's the guy who's reading these periodicals in German. The technology exists in Europe. No one's done it in the United States. And he goes, I can do this. So he starts making real cables. 
And it's, it's fascinating to see him actually fight against the hemp industry, for lack of a better way to put it. Fights you wouldn't think about. The rope interest is very angry to see him ascending as he's starting to replace their role on railroads, major construction projects. Because of course, who wants to use freaking rope when you can have <laughs> real cables? It holds so much better. It doesn't snap. Fewer injuries, fewer deaths. And in this world, I'm not going to say that people's lives are treated as expendable. But this is an OSHA-free world, and it's still inconvenient for employers when you have death and major injuries. They don't want to have to train new people and all that jazz. So they have plenty of, of reason to turn to Roebling. And from there, Roebling starts getting small commissions. He puts bids out to build aqueduct bridges for some of the canals that are still in, in play. And then as railroads are re replacing canals, we're in the 1830s, 1840s. That's where railroads are starting to really come into their own. They've gotten to these astounding speeds of like 40 to 50 miles per hour. And suddenly canals, which have been the super highway of the world up to this point. Before the railroad, there is no meaningful way to move quickly on land. I think people very rarely grasp this. Even if you think about a horse, that horse has to rest so much that if you're moving over a very long period of time, the fastest way to move is actually your own two feet. Because we can sweat. Beasts of burden need to pant. They need to rest. So when you think about heading across the Oregon Trail, for instance, two miles per hour is very normal. And that's why the Pony Express, as amazing as that was, it was rider after rider changing. You don't have one guy riding from Missouri out to California. You've got horses and riders changing out constantly because otherwise the horses would just be ridden to death. So that's the only way they could get something to move 25 miles per hour before the railroad across land. So... Railroads are mind-boggling. They are changing the world. And suddenly canals are dropping out, right? The Great Erie Canal that was so significant suddenly is no longer a big deal. And it's changing the economy. Towns that built themselves on the basis of canals suddenly have to compete with railroads and the railroad might blow right past them. Boom, that town's just dead. And a new town pop at the new hub. So all these changes are happening and Roebling is right there with it. And bridges, of course, are going in order for these new railroads that are completely devastating some corners of America and inventing this entirely new America. He's right there on, on the cutting edge. So I'm sorry. I feel like I've talked way too much about his background. I can get a little too yeah. excited about it. No, but the, no, he's, he's such a fascinating <laughs> guy. It's like there have been so many figures in American history where you wonder, like, where are these? Where's the Thomas Jefferson? Where's the John Roebling? And I know they're out there. They're like Steve Jobs and Bill Gates and whatnot. But so ultimately, he had this vision. Did he ultimately become involved in the construction of the Brooklyn Bridge? Yeah. So as the Brooklyn Bridge starts to come together with, again, a lot of interest from the Brooklynites, even as we're getting into the 1860s, Brooklyn is trying to access Manhattan because they work there. Manhattan, if, if I may, just could not give a damn about getting to Brooklyn. This is very much a one-sided... So Brooklyn was uh, like the first bedroom community. There you exactly go. right. Yeah. If you think about New York, so just to talk about the development of it as a city from small little New Amsterdam, this little tiny settlement by the Dutch back in the, the 1600s before the, the British took it over and changed it to New York. It's been creeping from the southern tip of Manhattan, what we call lower Manhattan, up and up. But here's the funny thing is you start to get to what we would call today Midtown or even up into upper Manhattan. That's miles. Meanwhile, Brooklyn is just 1,600 feet across that one little body of water. Ugh, but 
that little body of water is very dangerous. So of course, Brooklyn starts to grow and ferries are way faster than living five miles uptown if you don't have a railroad to connect you to it, right? So you can see how it becomes this bedroom community even before all of Manhattan Island itself is really completely developed. So he's had some some experience with suspension bridges. I think I saw like he had two big ones, like the Ohio River and... There's a couple before that. The Covington Bridge is a big one. He builds a bridge up at Niagara Falls. Yeah. He has a resume that's worth bragging about. For sure. But here we go with this 1,600 feet, which is, wow, this hasn't been done before. And he's got this grand idea to build a suspension bridge there. Did he have support? Were there skeptics? Did people think he was a kook? What was the reception and how did he move forward? All the above. I guess one of the interesting patterns I see in history is always noticing things that we often celebrate today and say, what an incredible achievement. If we say that today, I guarantee you conventional wisdom was as the dumbest, craziest, <laughs> outlandish idea ever at the time. And all the smart people are boohooing it. Whether you want to talk about building the Eiffel Tower, which was viewed as being this gaudy steel construction that just needs to come down. The Transcontinental Railroad, just insane. You can't lay rail all the way across the nation and getting through the Sierra Nevadas humanly impossible. All of these projects thought to be completely undoable. Brooklyn Bridge, right there with it. So you, you have a lot of people that are, even as the political process is playing out, and this is where we get to some of the corruption. I don't know to what extent you want to get into that since it's not really infrastructure, but you've got people who are like, well, what is this big move? Why would anyone be okay with this? What shenanigans are the Democrats in Tweed's pocket? Boss right. Tweed. Who's going to pay you off know? Boss Tweed? He's got to take Ex- his, he's got to take exactly. his cut. What I'd like to focus on, and I think this would be really interesting, it's fascinating, and when I listened to your episode about the Brooklyn Bridge, I was riveted. I was on a flight when I listened to it. I want to talk about the engineering and the construction of the bridge and what, if any, role John Roebling played in this. Sure. So he really comes up with a plan. He's the one who decides that, first of all, let's just talk basic overview. First of all, we've got to build these towers and they're going to have to be in the water. So how on earth do we have infrastructure for that? How do we have a foundation to build these towers on? He's going to use this fairly new technology. It's only been used on one bridge. Actually, he's coming up with this idea. It's still in the process. Uh, So it, it really hasn't been used in the United States before. These are called pneumatic casings. So we're going to take a massive structure. It's basically the size of a ship. Each of these casings weighs about 3,000 tons. Okay. And it's like an upside down cup, right? We're going to plunge that into water. Just like when, when you were a kid, if you, you take a bucket and you get in the pool and you pull it over your head. Well, no, that, that's I, can't, cool. I can't say I ever did that. That sounds dangerous as all get out. I did. But, but maybe you, you do out in Utah. <laughs> Absolutely. Out, out West where we, we still take these big risks. A 5% chance you're going to die, but I'm going to put a bucket over my head and get in the pool. Okay, you but you're it. talking about the idea of like being above the water, putting the bucket over your head so you can like scuba dive, right? So you can yeah, get under the water and do some stuff. For your listeners who have kids, they might remember the scene in the first Pirates of the Caribbean movie when Captain Jack and Will Turner, they pulled canoe over their heads to yes. get past British I guards, right? That. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. There we go. All right. So we've established Dave's inner Disney junkiness. Perfect. There we go. <laughs> yes. We knew it was in there. So this is the same idea as these caissons. They're like the upside-down yeah. canoe or the bucket over your head. And, and just so yes. we're clear, because I, I think that the three of us are a little better versed than your average person stumbling onto this, the caissons were used to construct the towers at either end of the bridge. Correct. If you look at a picture of Brooklyn Bridge, 
they are actually in the East River itself. Okay. Okay. So we're going to sink them into the water. Now, if you remember pulling that bucket over your head, if you were as irresponsible as me and not that intelligent, Dave, of course, (laughs) made better choices as a child. I get it. Um, But I still became a lawyer anyway. (laughs) Okay. So then he made poor choices as an adult. Maybe it's one or the other. You get to make poor choices as a child or as an adult. So uh, (laughs) the, the, the bucket though, as you may recall, it gets harder to keep it on your head the deeper you go into the pool, right? Right. Because we have increased pressure differential. The air is wanting to escape. It wants to go up. So imagine these massive 3,000 pound, essentially upside down cups slash ships being put into the East River and they do float. They are built by shipbuilders and moved down the river with tugboats floating Upside down, right? They're right side up for cases, but upside down in terms of our thinking about them like a cup. And then they get them into place. Think about the math required here. Oh, gosh. To to know where you're going to put these things and then to be able to weigh them down. So they've been digging on the bottom of the river. They've been dredging and all that jazz. They've got it all squared off. They know exactly where it's going to be. And in fact, this is how we lose John Roebling. He is doing that. We lose John Roebling? Where'd he go? To the grave. Uh, <gasps> John is gone. Did you know that Pendulum Land Services is a small, women-owned, DBE-certified right-of-way company? It's a full services company, but they'll happily jump onto a project to assist with difficult issues, especially complex relocations. They won't go down in the caissons, but they will get down in the weeds with you and your team. Find them at PendulumLand.com, PendulumLand.com. As he is doing the math and figuring out where the Brooklyn casing's going, he's so lost in his thought, he's not paying attention. As one of those fairies comes booking it in, it hits a pylon too hard. Basically, we have a chain reaction where other things on the dock is disrupted and his toes get crushed. Now, not a huge injury, right? Toes. You aren't going to die from that, are you? Not in 2021. (laughs) Not 2021, but in the 1860s, you sure can. He tries to, of course, work through it. His toes have been crushed to the the width of a penny. And he's just, you know, like Monty Python. uh, uh, It's merely a flesh wound, right? I'm not dead yet. (laughs) Yeah. And then, of course, he finally collapses. Again, you got to remember, this is a guy who gets absolutely irate if you waste five minutes of his time. So of course he tries to work through it. He collapses in pain that he's taken home and then locked jaw sets him. Today, he would have been absolutely fine. Like tetanus, right? Exactly. Yep. Yeah. I actually read that he had his toes amputated without any anesthesia. This guy was hardcore. Sometimes people just need to suck it up and uh, think of John Roebling. Yeah. No kidding. Oh, so wait, uh, so John Roebling is dead. But we have the Brooklyn Bridge. And, and, but, exactly. And nothing's ha- they haven't even gotten the caissons to the right place yet. So what happened? Nope. What, what they, do we do? So, of course, they need another chief engineer on the spot, pronto. And the ideal candidate is his own son, Washington Roebling, that little child who was with him on the ferry back in 1852 or 53. I guess he grew up. Like Pops, he studies engineering. I'll mispronounce the name without having practiced it right before recording. I said it right in the episode, but I believe it's the Risling Poly- Polytech up in Troy, New York. Mm-hmm. Are either of you familiar with it? No. No. Okay. No. Mm-hmm. You can have a listener write in about how I 
said it wrong, but it'll be great. It's one of the most incredible, best schools that you can go to for engineering. So he's gone there. And during the Civil War, he built bridges for the Union Army. He was at Gettysburg. He nearly got killed multiple times. I didn't know that. So, wow. Okay. So uh, he's not like, I, oh, I'm this guy's son. I'll just take over. Like he, he knew what he was doing. He's legit. 100%. Now he sees himself as being a little bit lazy, but you got to remember who his dad was, right? This guy was insane in terms of work ethic. Right. So Washington Roebling's idea of being a more chill person is still working on overdrive. Any idea of how old Washington was when he took over for his dad? Just over 30, if I remember correctly. Oh my so God. So Park, 30 years he's old. I wouldn't let a 30-year-old mow my lawn in this day and age. <laughs> and he's going to build the Brooklyn Bridge? He's going to build the Brooklyn Bridge. But you know what? War makes you grow up fast, right? So it this does. guy has a top-notch education. He's been through the ringers of, of war. He's built multiple bridges. Now, he is terrified. This is intimidating, right? He knows he is not his dad. And he feels that burden. But he also feels the burden of making sure his dad's dream happens. Hey, infrastructure junkies. You know we have a pretty niche podcast. Well, we found one that's even nicherer. Nicherer? Nicherer. We love infrastructure. These guys love infrastructure even more, so much that they created a podcast all about just one type of infrastructure, bridges. It's the Bridge Boys podcast. You got to check this out. The whole thing is about the creation and history of different bridges all around the world. The hosts, Jeremy and Andreas, do a great job with their producer, Troy, and we've really been enjoying their episodes. So check them out, and here's a word from the Bridge Boys. Welcome to Bridge Boys. Bridges. My name is Jeremy, and this is my partner in crime, Andreas Papas. That's right. We're here to introduce you to the podcast that takes you on a whirlwind tour of the world's coolest bridges. Yeah, we'll be exploring the history, culture, and engineering that goes into them. So we hope you'll join us on our exploration of all these beautiful bridges. And be sure to subscribe to the Bridge Boys podcast on your favorite podcast player. Yeah, we'll be dropping some new bridge knowledge every Monday starting August 9th. So we'll talk to all of y'all then. Bridges. This is something I think about. I was actually, I had the opportunity to get to New York just last week. And so I made my pilgrimage to the Brooklyn Bridge and walked across it and I remember as I passed by one of the towers. So you got to remember each of those two towers beneath them to this day is a caisson. That is the foundation of that tower. And I couldn't help but think to myself, what is it like to be Washington Roebling to go to work every day working at the very site where your father received the injury that ended his life three weeks later? Wow. No kidding. I've walked across the Brooklyn Bridge. It was before I heard your podcast and knew all of this. I, I need a do-over. Yeah, I, I definely... I need to do a virtual. Well, I just need this. to walk across the Brooklyn yeah. Bridge. Professor, we've talked about these caissons. It's very difficult to visualize without a visual aid, but you've mm -hmm. done a great job of explaining it. The caissons themselves are a construction aid, right? They were used to assist in the construction of the towers on either side of the bridge. Do I understand that correctly? They are the foundation for the towers, and they okay. are being sunk into place. And so they're filled with air so that they can get it down to the bottom of the river. And the way they do that is they actually just start building the tower on it. So again, think of your bucket, right? And it's getting harder and harder to hold down as you're a little kid in the pool. For those of us who, who did that, 
Dave was reading a law book. He but, was. You know, I, was I had a bucket on my head in the pool. I'll, you still I'll do you. on this podcast. <laughs> and, and so, so it would be like doing that and then somebody putting a cinder block on top of the bucket. Yes, exactly right. And so they keep doing that until it finally gets heavy enough that even as the tide goes up, the casing sits on the ground. And now they've got an air pocket at the bottom of the East River. Oh. And now some poor, unfortunate souls have to actually get inside the tower. And within the tower, above the waterline, they've got basically cylinders, right, that you go down. And then they have a chamber where they can close one door, open the other, equal out the air pressure. And then you are standing, if you're one of these poor workers, pretty much Europeans fresh in who are getting this truly terrifying, miserable job. They're going down to the bottom and they are digging the bottom of the river to drive those casings deeper and deeper. Okay, that is a point that I want to drive home here. You've got the upside down bucket, the casing, which is being pushed down by building the tower on top of it. It hits the riverbed, but you're not done. Precisely right. Because remember, these towers, they are going to weigh, we have one tower that weighs 80,000 tons. That's the Brooklyn Tower. The New York Tower, which the casing has to go deeper, which means you've got to have more masonry so it can have an equal height when it's all said and done coming above the waterline. That one's 90,000 tons. So it's not like this casing can just sit merrily at the bottom of the river. That thing has to be sunk down, ideally to bedrock. So you're putting the granite on top of the casing to sink it. And then once it sinks, it's on just the sand at the bottom of the East River. And then these poor fellas are going down and they are breathing air at the bottom of the East River, digging sand out or dirt or whatever is at the riverbed to get to the bedrock, right? Yep. Where's the, where, where's the sand going that they're d- digging out? So they've got, they've got two chutes each of which are actually filled with water. So now if we're going to, again, play with how on earth this works, again, Dave didn't didn't do this, of course, but for the rest of us who had real childhoods, (laughs) when when we'd be drinking a soda and you'd put your tongue on the tip of the straw and then you'd you'd pull it out and you thought, oh, how cool, right? I, I can fill this straw up and it's still holding water even though I've got it out of the cup. This is amazing. And if you're a real jerk, you didn't like sprayed it at your brother or sister or something like that. <laughs> Dave probably did that part. <laughs> it's that same sort of principle. We've got basically this large straw, right? This big tube. And there's a claw that's going down into it, a big metal claw. And the idea was that this claw would be able to just pick up whatever dirt they've, they've dug out and they're throwing it into this muddy, watery pit that's underneath the claw, right? So if you're this, this worker, freshen from Dublin and you're moving all that dirt off the sides and you put it underneath the claw. They thought the claw would just pick it up nice and cleanly, but of course the sand just passes right between the teeth and it gets gummed up all the time. They end up having to have multiple extra claws on hand or constantly changing it out. Someone has to be mixing. There's someone whose full-time job is to stand there and just stir all the sludge so that it doesn't solidify so much that the claw can't get around it. Wow. Oh yeah. No, this job sucks. The (laughs) lighting is terrible. You're using whale fat and and whale oil. You've got just this eerie glow. Everything's illuminated in like a a blue flame. A lot of the workers described it like they were in basically, they weren't calling it hell per se, but like purgatory. It felt otherworldly to them. Infrastructure junkies, there's so much stuff here to cover that we're actually going to stop. We're going to take a break and we're going to come back in two weeks to finish this story. Join us then.